I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us for the first time, our newest regular guest, the Reverend Aaron Uphoff. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm well, guys. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, agreeing to come on. I can assure the audience it took minimal arm twisting to get him to... uh, to join the podcast here, Reverend Upoff is a pastor in the state of New Jersey. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, do you want to tell me about tell you guys about the church or where I'm from or what do you want? Let's start with the church, then tell us about where you're from. All right, sure. I'm serving at a Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Randolph. It's in Morris County. I'm sure our listeners aren't terribly familiar with the geography of New Jersey, but we're about 40 miles directly west of Manhattan, west of New York City. And we're in the New Jersey Highlands, which, believe it or not, is actually it's like a foothill region of the Appalachian Mountains. But nobody here thinks of it that way. We are essentially just a suburb of, of the greater New York City area, and our congregation's kind of a smaller suburban congregation, it's a little over 100 years old. And uh, where are you from? Uh, I'm from central Illinois, not too far from where you're serving, Willie, a little town of Beeson. You can go on here. I was raised United Methodist and became a Lutheran when I was in 20, uh, going to college. Joined the Missouri Synod for various reasons and eventually found myself in the seminary, and that's how I ended up here. And Pastor Upoff and the rest of the regulars on Word Fitly Spoken, I mean, we all went to the same seminary and kind of became good friends there, and so we're, we're glad to have you on, Aaron. Yeah. How's the weather out your way? I've been looking forward to participating in the gratuitous weather posting. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good day today in the mid-50s. Lots of the snow that we had over the last couple of weeks melting. No basement flooding, which makes me happy. Yeah, no, it's nice. Nice out here on the East Coast. <laughs> Is this where I say we were in the mid-50s too, below? I'm kidding. We weren't that cold. <laughs> 30s below. <laughs> Actually, it was only just a little bit below. I think it was only like five below or something today, but it's been snowing again. So what about you, Willie? We were you know, in the 50s, and the positive 50s in the central Illinois region today. It was a little cold, a little rainy, but that didn't deter new membership classes and all the stuff we've got going. So that's, or excuse me, new members, new member classes, I meant to say. So not enough weather to really slow us down here. So that is that is good. It's been a fairly mild winter despite the couple days of extreme extreme frigidness that we had. So that's good. And it's good to get, you know, a far someone farther east coast so we can get some variety here. <laughs> but if 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 you come on more, I'm going to ask you for a crime report. <laughs> well, we are recording at 10:45 Eastern time to accommodate our our brother there in the uh, mountain time zone. So um, No, no, no. This is more Willie's doing. <laughs> <laughs> I find the guests are more lively at night. They're like gremlins. Don't get them wet. Don't feed them after midnight. (laughs) So, well, all right, gentlemen. So we have come together to begin our discussion of the law. Very popular topic among American Lutherans, specifically the curbing function of the law. Now, let's just get some basic definitions out of the way. When we say the law, what do we mean? Are we talking, you know, are we talking about mere civil law? Are we talking about, you know, every regulation? No. We're talking about God's law. So how do we define that? 
Yeah, God's law is God's will. It's his will for his creation. And it's something, of course, that human beings, men, do not keep since the fall, or at least keep perfectly. We are now sinners and uh, sinful beings, and but that doesn't nullify the law's effect in our life, which is sort of where this is all coming from. So when we talk about uses or functions of the law, we've historically said there are three. What would be those three uses? Sure. Well, I mean, it's the curb, mirror, and guide, classically defined. Curb is what we're focusing on tonight. It's like the law is used to check out course outbursts of sin and helps us to keep order in the world. The mirror function is that the law, uh, as God's perfect will, shows us how we do not measure up to that will, how we are sinners, shows our sin. And the guide is that uh, as Christians, we have this rule to follow to live God-pleasing lives. So we like to talk about the mirror an awful lot. Obviously, that's not going to be an issue, that that the law shows us our sins. In fact, we tend to magnify the mirror so much, that's really the only conception we have of the law. The third use is kind of the redheaded stepchild, because that's the one that everybody cooler than me doesn't like. And so, you know, we, we often have to come back and deal with that, deal with that discussion. But the curbing use doesn't get a lot of press. Yeah, I'd say the curbing use is in contemporary conversations about the law. It's like Franz Pieper's sons that weren't pastors. It's just, it's almost like they didn't. <laughs> Who needs them? <laughs> if we're talking about the uses of the law, we're also talking about something that, I mean, the law exists already in the very beginning of creation. I think the reason why sometimes we magnify the second use of the law so much is because we tend to think of how the law relates to us as sinners. And that certainly has precedence within Paul talking about, you know, the the law uh, coming and bringing sin to life and putting us to death. But we have to recognize that if God's will is the law, this is something that has existed throughout all time, including before we fell into sin. Mm -hmm. But because of God's general providence and his control over all things, the first use of the law comes in to curb things so that evil does not break out into the degree that it, that it wants to go to. No, yeah, that's like, that's exactly right. I mean, part of the reason this has been a hot button topic for me is that, uh, like you said, like well, Willie just said that you know everything just seems to be reduced to the mirror, you know, and, and certainly the third use debate. Everyone says, yeah, but still the law and the law. You know, you're a sinner, so even when you're using it as a guide, it's always going to show your sin. And the way I sort of myself start to think about it is like, you know, everyone talks about the solas, which even themselves, I think, are kind of a a relatively recent frame for the Reformation and its theology. But the sixth sola, if you want to add one for a lot of people, is the lex semper accusat, that, you know, the law only always accuses or something like that. And I I think that that's a, a framing that sort of shoves out the other two uses and functions, whatever you want to say. And they're they're really needful place in the lives of the Christian and in our theology, including, I would say, our preaching and teaching. One of the things that I always remember in seminary, and I didn't really include this in the introduction, but it's worth noting that after I became a Lutheran, I, I became what is commonly known as a podcast Lutheran in some circles. And ironic that I'm saying Ironic, yeah. <laughs> in this, you accuse us also, sir. <laughs> Well, it's like, I mean, I read the Bible before becoming a Lutheran, which is sort of part of what led me into the church, and and I love the theology of it, and then I became a Lutheran, and I quit reading the Bible for a while because I had all the answers, not just from the catechism, but from the shows I listened to, from the blogs, and a lot of that stuff had, I'd say, overly simplistic takes on our theology, which is you know part of what we're talking about tonight, uh, namely that just a hyper-focus on the law always accusing, the mirror, the second use— you see this manifested in sermons, and I'm not going to pretend that I didn't even write or deliver a few of these during seminary and perhaps afterward, where you have, like, I call it the Roman 7 turn, where, you know, you talk about the law in the positive sense in the first half, but then you use Paul's words, well, the good that I would do, that I do not, and the evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. And that's sort of as far as you go, then you give the gospel and you tie up the sermon 15, 16 minutes, you know, into it and with a with a nice knot and you sort of forget you forget that if the if the law is god's will and his goodwill and it's good for us and it's a good thing then 
it's going to do something that's going to help us live our lives too. And I think that I don't want to over, overly simplify it, but I think that's that's what the, the first use is all about. It's not just about making the civil law, but it's also about helping us to to live a good life, to live a safe, productive, happy life in the world that God has made. So what led then to your your change of heart with regard to the preaching and the teaching of the law? I started reading the Bible again. <laughs> that in part, you know, and in, in the friends you hang out with, you know, you, you, to have your theology and your thoughts influenced by them. So this august crew that are the hosts and regular guests on Word Fitly was influential in that regard. And you just, in that and just, I'd say personal experience. So, you know, you think about it, just the way you live life, you you have a certain problem or an issue with just a day-to-day thing. Like you, you might ask somebody, I'm having trouble with my finances, you know, or money, money's tight. You know, what do you do? How do you do the budget? And like you ask people for advice and they will in turn give you advice. They'll tell you what to do. And you're like, oh, this is helpful. This has made things better. And we sort of seem to be, I realized we're like, well, we're okay with that happening in like these other realms of life that aren't at least explicitly or directly about theology. Someone tells you what to do and you're like, I'm going to do this and it works out and it's better. Okay. But then, you know, someone tells you, the Bible tells you to do this. And a lot of times people just run straight to that mirror use like, well, yeah, it says to love your neighbor, but I really don't. Thank goodness Jesus loved my neighbor for me and I'm forgiven. And we sort of leave it there. And it's like, and, you know, <laughs> and this, there's a little bit of bleed over into the third use part of this too. I get that. but Yeah, but they are, they are interrelated. Right. They certainly I mean, the are. curve is very much part of the guide. I mean, it's just one's the positive aspect, one's the negative aspect. I, I think I was talking with Zellin about this. It's, it's like the guide is God's law, which tells us what is pleasing to him, what to do that is pleasing for him. The curb is the law telling us what is good and helpful and beneficial for us. Yeah, I think we make a little bit of a mistake here when with the curb and the guide. We we tend to say, well, the curb is universal, but now the guide is only for Christians, when the reality is all three uses really serve some function for everyone. I mean, obviously the curbing effect of the law, but then the usage of the law is still a guide for all of creation, whether or not people resist it or not. Right. It's a question of ability once someone's regenerate, but more and more, I mean, we've keep turning the old man into some kind of colossus and we need to be careful about that. So that that's that's part of the thing. We've so we've turned the old man into like the modern literary interpretation of Milton Satan uh where we want to turn it into this some kind of charismatic figure even though that, I don't think that was Milton's intent, but they they want to to make it into this charismatic figure who's really quite clever and can't be ultimately you know, isn't isn't conquerable uh, until the very end better to reign in hell than serve in heaven willie that's what you're getting at so <laughs> right yeah i mean we admit that the old adam will eventually be completely destroyed and of course we acknowledge that we wrestle against that sinful nature insofar as we live in a fallen flesh mm-hmm. but it's become to, it's it's come to the point where oh my old adam you know it's just every day it's like yeah but you're not really struggling with it and because you pretend to struggle and you magnify it so much, the third use just becomes this hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd probably listen to the law if I could, but I can't. So, simul justus, right? Right. Well, now I find it interesting, Aaron, that I'm right on board where, where you're at, but I'm just, we usually hear the first use presented as a kind of a purely negative kind of a thing. The curb is there to just kind of stop sin, mm-hmm. but you're saying that it's actually there as a kind of a positive in a guide, in a sense. Yeah. But I mean, could, could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Sure. Like, you know, so it talks about curbing gross outbursts of sin, but also like, I just think about, like, you know, any given commandment where if you just want to take one of the 10 commandments, like if you don't steal, you are going to have a better life than somebody who does steal. And I'll, have to, I'll give the appropriate qualifications about theology of, of glory and prosperity gospel later. But if you go out and steal a car or something, and then you get caught, you're, you know, you're, you're in prison, your children are growing up without a father, at least for, for a time. And things would have been better for you if you kept the Lord's law to not steal from other people and that to God's law, you know, and and all of its guiding ports. And it's not just limited to the 10 commandments, of course, it's pretty much any, any positive 
imperative anywhere in scripture just telling you what to do things will things will more than likely go better for you when you do that think of the fourth commandment so that you may live long in the land that the right. lord your god is giving to you i mean yeah. that one has an explicit promise attached to yeah, it yeah we forget so. there are purely civil consequences to it i mean it's as simple as avoiding a not lead to b right don't do straight heroin you're redu- you, you know your your chances of an overdose really lower and I can make more crass references here, but I won't because we're talking about the uses of the law. I mean, it's right. as, simple, as, as simple as there are specific consequences for specific sins. Yeah. If you avoid these sins, you will not face certain temporal consequences. Right, right. It's sort of like so we get this like, you know, if you diet and exercise, you are not going to be most likely not be overweight and unhealthy. At least the yeah, standard. The, the <laughs> anti-body shaming movement is not moved by type two diabetes, or type right. two diabetes is not moved by the anti-body shaming movement. It will happen if you don't take care of yourself. Right, right. You know, not to be too offensive there, but that's just that's where we are with this. We have to explain things in in these simple ways because we've become so blinded and so accustomed to reading the scripture, even looking at natural law almost through a through a certain lens that serves only to deny the will of God and the life of the Christian and to deny God's will for all of his creation. And so that's, that's what, that's what we find ourselves in. No Lutheran and very few Christians will actually come out and say that they hate the law, Mm -hmm. but it sure sounds like they don't like it much. I'm sure what they mean is, is simply they don't like the effect of the law on them perhaps the feeling of conviction or the bad feels. And yet the scriptures affirm that God's law is a good thing. Right. Absolutely. And like, I think about it this way, like I, I know we run the risk of like being accused of goodness knows what uh, by talking about this and these, these things in this way, like, you know, legalism or, or good, you know, I don't know the, the fact that like, we know that we are forgiven, justified in Christ and that you know, nothing can touch that. Like the confidence of justification, it makes the law a good thing. I, I, I don't, I really don't understand the aversion by some people to the law in that sense, like talking about it, like it's the worst thing ever. It's like, well, no, if this is God's will and if Christ has kept it for me and died for me and freely forgiven me, well, then I want to learn more about God's will. I want to try and do God's will better, not just to please him in the guide sense, but also to live a better life. Like, I don't think love your neighbor. Oh, and, and then just immediately go to how, you know, thinking all the time about how I really don't do it. I know I don't do that, but I don't, I don't just always jump to that. I don't, I don't it doesn't seem, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It, it's funny. It, it quickly becomes then the only good work is somehow related to merely good theology mm-hmm. and showing people that how the law always accuses. Right. So, and that becomes it. Loving your neighbor is merely making sure that he's thinking right. Right. So this this episode was sort of prompting me to have these thoughts more and more was listening to your guys's interview with Pastor Kuntz talking about Lutheran slogans or overused slogans. It was an excellent episode and any listeners that haven't heard it should go back and, and find it. And it's just I, I've heard all these lines and yeah, I used to speak a few of them, too. Like one of them I was thinking about today was that's the language of the law. You know, if you tell someone something that is good and God pleasing to do. You know, like taking good measures in your life to protect your marriage and raise your children well. And they say, well, where's the gospel? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as if as if it's like a Billy Graham crusade sermon in front of a bunch of heathen or something like that. Well, right. no, I mean, more often than not, we're preaching and talking to Christians as pastors. And there's many that think the criteria, the lane for that needs to be always and only talking about justification which, again, it's not to deny or minimize that, but I think the opposite is true, and, and they are minimizing the goodness of God's law. Right. Well, speaking of speaking in the way of the law, I do have to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. 
hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. We are back. This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Aaron Uphoff talking the curbing function or the curbing use of the law. So we talked a lot about how the law is misapplied, misunderstood. Uh, we talked a lot about the theoretical applications or some of the sort of the fictional understandings that men have invented in order to wipe away the truth about the law. What we need to do and what is possibly the most helpful thing when discussing the law is to actually speak of it in the terms that the Scripture uses. So does the Scripture inform our discussion of the uses of the law? And if so, where would be a good place to start that discussion? When I started reading the Bible more after I took my my brief hiatus, and I didn't really take a full hiatus, but just didn't read it as much, I just realized how much it just tells you what to do, and it doesn't do the trick of, of telling you how you don't do it. And you just read it and let the word stand and recognize that, nope, this is just talking about your life as a Christian now justified, you do this. A good example of that that I was thinking about tonight would be like from Colossians 3, where Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged and so forth. Just these explicit commands, you should do this. This is good. And I've heard this and so many other passages. If it's talked about or preached about, yeah, and I, I really just don't do it the way I should. I don't keep it. And and then turned into that mere use. And like, no, it just seems to be set. Paul says it like actually wanting people to do these things. And for the family issue in particular, you know, I, I think that that's applicable to all of our listeners in some form or another. You can see how when these things happen, when we do these things, albeit imperfectly, but when we do them to the best of our ability, our family lives are happier. Our children are better people. Our marriages are better marriages, stronger marriages, and so forth. And that's true on the very practical end, because it does curb a lot of these wicked influences. And I think it's worth asking this point before we move on to another, another scripture passage, is would society as a whole be better off if it was governed according to God's holy law? Undoubtedly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no civil civil law. There's no law that you're going to find in the world that's better than God's revealed law. I don't know. I don't know how anybody else could think that. Like, we're going to come up with a system. And of course, we're not talking yeah. about the restoration of the civil and ceremonial law of the Old Testament necessarily. We're talking about the institution of the moral law as the bedrock for absolutely all civil laws. Quite frankly. Really, because of the nature of Revelation, you, we do have that. It's Romans 1. These men become a law unto themselves because of, no matter how feeble, there is that innate knowledge of good and evil or right and wrong. Which is kind of funny. Even in the, in, even in the heart of fallen men is some measure of understanding of right from wrong, according to God's law. One of the things that you had mentioned, Aaron, I think is actually very worthwhile to point out here is that Paul doesn't have any hesitations of, as you called it, telling people what to do. Mostly because, you know, because we tend to focus on like, let's say Romans 7, where he says, you know, I, I do the sin that I want, that I'm going to keep on doing. But this is the same Paul who could also say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right. Well, because Paul too also, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But in, this, in the same Romans 7, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's remorse over sin, and it's actually a desire wanting to do good. We often forget that, there, right. that, that it's both, that, that he's, he's grievous because he wants to do good. He wants to obey the law right, because right. he is that new man in Christ. And so, you know, this idea that I, I just, I absolutely disagree that we should somehow glory in, in sin and glory and wickedness. And you can't tell me that that is not part of some of these groups out here because it absolutely is. 
Yeah. Or likewise, just use the fact that we are sinners and can't fully keep the law as an excuse to not even like try and take up, take it up and do it to, to do it. Well, I can't keep it perfectly. Yeah. So why bother? Yeah, or to ridicule the Christians who would seek to uphold the law mm-hmm. and look at them as if they somehow are less Christian or uh, understand the justification by faith less. Mm-hmm. I think the man who delights in the law of God understands more about justification and the eschaton than the man who doesn't. Absolutely agree, yeah. But Zelman, to your point, Paul does say imitate me. And he's not saying imitate me in the wickedness that I've committed in Romans 7. He's saying imitate me in my general daily life and devotion. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and he's not saying imitate me insofar as I do the liturgy well. He's not saying imitate me insofar as I reject the third use of the law. He's saying imitate me, the example I lay before you as your apostle and as your example in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Well, even even to the point where he says, I wish that all could be as I am when talking about marriage, where he said, you know, being unmarried. But he recognizes that there is a difference between a Christian's calling. And so the fact that he's willing to uphold his own personal state as something worthy of imitation goes to show a great deal about how we should actually approach the law, I think. Yeah, and it it kind of strikes our ears as arrogant. That's just the nature of our society. You know, be like me. Well, settle down, Paul. Don't you know (laughs) that you have that old Adam? (laughs) And we say this time and time again, but we forget that we're actually one human being struggling against sin. It's not, you're not two separate entities, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the scripture. I mean, we're not dualistic in that sense. <laughs> Just my opinion, but it also happens to be of the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> I should do the emergent church thing. You're thinking like a Greek. No. But, um, <laughs> emergent church. That takes me back. Remember when that was a thing? We're getting far afield here. <laughs> right, right. Well, to bring it back, a joke that I've used in discussing this with a few friends before is people are okay if Dave Ramsey tells them what to do and they will try their best to do it. But if Paul tells them what to do, they'll just talk to you about how they can't do it and talk about the gospel in its place. (laughs) Right. Well, and if it helps, Aaron is wearing a big, bulky headset and microphone right now (laughs) from the Dave Ramsey collection. Okay. On a budget over here in in Randolph, New Jersey. Yeah. Right. He's he's shaved his head. (laughs) It's available to speak at your local Baptist church. (laughs) No, it, it is funny. And we separate that, right? We say, well, it's not really a spiritual matter. It's finances. And we just need good practical advice on that. As if one... Finances aren't, in some sense, spiritual, and as if, too, that the weightier matters of the law are not spiritual. Mm-hmm. Or three, as if the Bible has nothing to say about your finances. But Exactly. Well, that's neither here nor there. The Bible says a lot of things. <laughs> so, so we've got the Colossians passage. Is there anything else you want to unpack from there before we move on? So we have the wives, submit to your husbands. We have the children. We understand that. The slaves part, you know, yeah. probably yeah. not really applying to most of us, unless we have some listeners in Arabia somewhere. <laughs> right. No, I, I think I would I would simply say this. It's that you can maybe have a whole other episode with me or someone else devoted to this, but I see the families that are doing, thinking, speaking, talking the way that we are tonight the ones that I have observed are hand and foot above the ones that I, I see and know that reduce everything to the mirror. What's a spicy hot take we got there? Well, I mean, it's it's <laughs> like when you recognize that there are, you know, there are rules, you know, that <laughs> this are isn't doing, nom. This isn't nom, dude. There are rules. <laughs> and and it's better when you like say no to your children. Like if you if you tell your children no when they want something that's bad and you discipline them, they will turn out to be better adults. Like full stop. I don't, you know, I shouldn't even, that shouldn't even be like controversial. And like, actually, I think that people who might disagree with our frame of this would sort of agree on that. Maybe they just wouldn't see it as, you know, having the theological connections. that. No, no, no. What they would do is they would immediately jump to an example of some parent who did all the right things and their kids still fell into sin. Right. As if that proves the rule. Right. And that's how we do. 
<laughs> anecdotes, straw men, platitudes, and slogans. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's maddening when you encounter that. But no, I mean, it's, and this is purely anecdotal. I'm not going to pretend that it's not, but I think that people that give a fair shake and, and you just, you know, what, what do you, what's the best way to learn from people? You know, Paul says, imitate me. When I started, you know, doing that with people that seem to have a better grasp on various things in life, you know, you quickly realize some things work and other things don't. You know, you look at someone like, oh, their marriage seems to be in pretty great shape. What are they doing? I mean, it's Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he, he will not depart from it. Are you going to argue with the Lord God? <laughs> Some you do. Really wanna, you really want to well. try that? But... <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Tips fedora to Proverbs and then begins explaining a better way. It's it Honestly, we, we, treat, we, we look at something like Proverbs as practical as it is, and all of a sudden it's the Joseph Smith translation. And we're just correcting it because we think we know better. We've got to be careful with that. And really, Proverbs, the fact that it exists is probably proving our point. Proverbs exists. Case closed. Because Proverbs is all about (laughs) the use of the law in in life. The exclusive focus on the second use to marginalize everything else is like it turns the Bible into a hall of mirrors. You know, you just see yourself Mm -hmm. everywhere and how you're imperfect. And then you're sort of left there. Well, with, without a now what? It's like the scam at a hospital where they're always trying to get you in for more tests and the full body scan and everything, you know, <laughs> just so they can just keep running it and keep running it and never actually fix the issue. Right, right. I can't go an episode without Psalms posting, but you get the Psalms, for example, like Psalm 1 talking about, you know, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 19, and uh, the law of the Lord is good, mm-hmm. delighting the eyes. Psalm 119, which is a gigantic treatise on the goodness of the law. And you also have like Psalm 15, for example, the description of uh, what a righteous man is. That Psalm in itself becomes inexplicable if the law is only meant to be something that condemns us. You have examples of of obeying the law, actually saving someone. Joshua, Joshua, you know, 24, of course, you know, choose this day and you will serve. Consider Moses coming down off Mount Sinai and just being like, hey, line in the sand over here or over here. I won't spoil that story, <laughs> but if you haven't read it, trust me, it's a little different than what's in the movie. <laughs> or, the, or the curses from the mountains at the end of Deuteronomy. Yes, they are the curse of the law. And this is, yes, this is what Paul's referring to. But it is also talking about things of like things will generally go better for you if you are following in the way of the Lord. There's a blessing attached to it. That's just the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. If I can make a little jump here, one of the things that I think about with this is that the, the people, the people that don't like this this frame or this way of talking about the law, generally are folks that spend a little bit too much time, I think, consuming not just podcasts or whatever, but reading. Like they don't they don't spend enough time, you know, in the real world, so to speak. Like I. I don't meet as many laymen that, that say these things as I do pastors. Laymen, yeah. uh, they they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, they know they're saved, and they don't they don't like forget it to the next week. They don't forget who Jesus was and like what he did. So that you have to tell them the same thing with the same surprise twist in your sermon the next Sunday. They know they're forgiven, and they want to know now that I'm forgiven, how do I live a good life? How do I live a God pleasing life? What do I do? And when we just like repeat trite slogans to them, which, I mean, if you guys want to fill this in, I don't know. I'm not sure how many oxes we're going to gore tonight. Oh, we got most of them. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're going to gore us when this episode drops. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not really helpful. I mean, I always you know, talk to the person that's guilted in their conscience and has a burdened conscience, give them the gospel explicitly. Yeah. And yeah. talk to the person though, that keeps falling into a particular sin and is having no trouble with something, tell him, you know, he's forgiven and also how he can move away from that. I think that we sometimes confuse actual contrition with hearing the law preached mm-hmm. and, and liking it and thinking it's preached appropriately. Oh, well, he really preached law and it really convicted me often means he preached it in a way I thought was appropriate and thunderous or eloquent right, even. Right. He checked all the boxes. Yeah. yeah and, and it's, and, and you might be moved in, in kind of like, Hey, that's what I said kind of way, but not in, in a true sense that your conscience is pricked or that you're cut to the quick. Mm-hmm. And that does happen. And that, and indeed that should happen because that is one of the ways in which the law works. 
you know, we talk about this a lot with with our preaching, and like you said, the twist ending, that's a good way to put it. It's like this obligatory preaching of the law that becomes more and more over the top, you know, because you just have to keep have to be, you know, keep that high, keep it more severe to the point to where it's absurd and doesn't necessarily apply. And then you flip it on its head and voila, here's the gospel. Right, and right. In seven to eight minutes, you, you've got that. Yeah. And, and it makes for, at times, it, it makes for preaching that can be good in a homiletical sense, right? It can get the desired effect somehow, but so could Finney's new measures. <laughs> That's probably the most controversial thing on this podcast. But anyway, continue. What we're looking for is solid biblical exegesis. And when we exposit the scripture in its purity, the Holy Ghost does work through the preached word. And the Holy Ghost really does bring men to contrition, real, honest contrition and repentance, and gives them that faith that they might lay hold of the promise of the gospel. So I'm not so much interested in preaching for... This is not homiletics one and homiletics two. I, I passed those classes. I got my check marks and I got my grades. They are public record. So that's done. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in, in impressing some internet pastor out there or, or some group. As a preacher, you need to say, I am interested in bringing the truth of the word of God, this particular text I'm preaching, not just some general truths that I want to try to wedge into a particular passage, but actually what is the Lord's intent in this particular text mm -hmm. that I've chosen for the sermon. And that's really elementary there, but that is our job to bring the word of God to them. And that typically would mean actually preaching the text. Well, I mean, this is another, I'm going back to Paul, first uh, Corinthians 10 verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And if we are, Faithful in our preaching. Theology of glory, right here, folks. Theology of glory, exactly, because <laughs> I use the word glory. Glory, and you mentioned the word glory is verboten. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if we are faithful in our preaching and the preaching tasks that we have been sent to do, we will do all things to God's glory, not to achieve some sort of rhetorical effect that we think is going to make the point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Or, or it's not just a means to get to whatever point I want to make. Right. I come across haughty and facetious, and for that I apologize, but we need to take a step back and see what we're actually doing here. And we're killing people. The people are starving. The people actually are thirsty right. for that pure word of God, so we ought to give it to them. My people perish for lack of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Some guy said. It's written somewhere. It's written somewhere. <laughs> Go, did we did a whole episode on Hosea, I believe. I, 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 did we? I can't remember. But anyway. If we haven't, we should. Well, there's <laughs> a lot of things we should do. Right. I mean, but if you even if you consider like some of the other passages, I mean, let's use another example. Should we go to, say, Galatians, for example? That's and a good one. That's always a good one. Lutherans like Galatians. In Galatians 5, for example, when Paul is talking about walking in the Spirit, we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the works of the flesh. But do we spend an equal amount of time about talking about the fruits of the Spirit? That's yeah. equally Paul's point here, right? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the, the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I mean... Paul isn't trying to do a, a rhetorical gotcha here. He is driving his hearers toward an appreciation of the will of God, and that has concrete meaning in their lives. And it's all in the context of rejecting a legalistic approach to salvation. For the Judaizers were trying to add to the law, or trying to add you know, something to the gospel, I guess, is the, better, is the better way to put it, excuse me. So in the context of a type of legalism, Paul is still going to say, practice these virtues. You're just setting people up to be fruit checkers, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> pointing them back to their works, pointing them to, to the law, and they're just going to be self-righteous Pharisees, you know, if you focus on stuff like that. You might as well just start selling indulgences, Elwin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm getting the box out as we speak, so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it keeps the lights on. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly.
The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zoe and Heidi, Aaron Upoff talking the law of God. So we looked at some good scripture there, quite a few different references. And so let's move it again, as we've been doing, pushing it more towards the practical. There are consequences of marginalizing the law as a curb. And then at the same time, the listeners might have some misconceptions about what we're saying. When we talk about the law, at times we can get pigeonholed into different categories, legalist, antinomian, gospel reductionist, this thing. Now, a lot of these titles for certain camps are apt. We're not saying they're not. But as we discuss the dangers of marginalizing the law, we're also going to be clarifying our position. So let's just start right here with the consequences. First question, are there consequences to marginalizing the law? Yeah, I think there are. Part of it is just people don't inherently know how to live. Like we have a conscience and But certainly, when you become regenerate, you just don't automatically have a perfect conscience and know all of God's will or understand it perfectly or just have this perfect reading of the Bible even to where you know how to apply everything in a flawless way to your life. So you still need to be continually taught what God's law is, what it means to love God and love your neighbor. And I think I've sometimes noticed that when uh, people don't have this take on the law, that it's just gospel till the cows come home without any instruction or follow-up that people often fall into these these sins and mistakes in their life and have dire consequences. And the gospel, you know, is then in turn given to them, but it's not even always the, the gospel of like necessarily the forgiveness of sins, but it's like the gospel of well, God loves you and everything's okay and it's a broken world, you know. It sort of the, the marginalizing of the law creates like these broken people that just want a nice word from God or need a nice word. Many, you know, of the things though that are troubling them are would have been avoided had they heard God's law and and heeded it. For instance, like somebody who is promiscuous in college, you know, and has come to to realize, you know, that you know, life is not good when you when you live that way and and and, and is burdened by it. Well, it would have been helpful if if someone had taught them that that was not just morally wrong, but harmful to their life. And uh, oftentimes, even I think you you find in such situations what Luther calls a gallows repentance, where it's not even like sorrow over the sin that it is it offended the holy God, but like Luther says, when the repentance is in such a way that the person is just ashamed that they've done harm to themselves and and that bad things have happened. Well, it's like if you, if you drink too much. And you wake up in the morning hungover, you're really repentant over the hangover, but not necessarily over the, the drunkenness the night before. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hangover really, not that any of us have ever been hungover, but the hangover really, you know, puts it in perspective. Okay, you hate this. I'm never doing it again, but you're going to do it again because you liked the euphoric effects of the alcohol. You didn't like what happened when you woke up on your bathroom floor. Mm-hmm. Luther is absolutely on point here and and he understands that you know and he, and he saw that as a as a pastor do you think there's any truth to the accusation that marginalizing the law leads to licentiousness absolutely i think i think it does every time like i think of first peter 2 he says live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of god when we don't have the law which shows us God's will active in our life beyond just showing us our sin, we're, I think, more prone to continue to go into these things which displease God, these things which are sinful. Yeah, I mean, it seems fairly clear that Peter wouldn't have to write those exact words if it wasn't a danger. Right, you know? right. And so he's dealing with, with the same thing. There are those who would say that, no, 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 um, we cannot preach too much, quote-unquote, gospel that, that that in no way can ever have negative consequences. And it's patently absurd. Now, right. when we say 
cannot preach, and that's part of the problem. We say, well, you got to preach, you can't preach too much gospel. What what does that even mean? What we've taken the word and just sort of, you know, I don't even know how to define it because what is the gospel in the narrow sense? It's salvation by faith or through faith in Christ alone. It's the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for you. Okay, now the question is, can you preach that too much? Well, that's that's a little bit of a straw man. The question is, can you apply it wrongly or deliver it at the wrong time? Of course you can, yeah. I mean, there's there's absolutely situations in which preaching the gospel is going to lead to hardening and to, like you say, licentiousness rather than genuine faith in Christ. For the sinner who is, has no intentions of actually amending their lives in any form whatsoever, or at least is not striving against sin actively, to hear that Jesus loves you despite the fact that you, you know, got drunk again for the third time this week. Maybe you should, I mean, we would say maybe you should stop doing that. Yeah, exactly. We're not denying that Christ is a friend of sinners. Right. It's just simply that a good friend doesn't let you keep destroying yourself. Right. I mean, Christ himself says, go and sin no more. I mean, I'm quoting Jesus himself on multiple occasions. He was only saying that so that she might be further convicted because that was law talk. <laughs> the woman caught in adultery. So she's really got to experience the depths of sin. Yeah. yeah, there's a line. I think it's a Luther line. Tell me if I'm wrong. It's uh, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair or something along those lines. You know, we're always going to be sinners, and 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 sin is unavoidable in that sense. But for some certain particular sins, you can avoid, and you can take measures to to keep them out of your your life. I mean, in the slogans episode, you talked about from Matthew eighteen when Jesus says, "If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off," and I, you know, I think that's what that's talking about. I've heard that I've heard that you know misapplied in so many ways to kind of you know change its meaning. Where you know, like, well, that passage is really teaching us that we don't have to cut off the hand or the foot because sin comes out of the heart or something like that. <laughs> right? Jesus didn't really mean it. Yeah, right. Which is a way to say Jesus is saying hell really isn't that bad. <laughs> Oosh. Yeah, right. No, I mean, it's 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 unfaithful to say stuff like that. I mean, then let me ask this question. So we've talked about being obedient for the sake of both avoiding the consequences of it as best we can, Mm -hmm. making smart life choices. And at the same time, in the previous segment, we talked about doing all things to the glory of God. So in this, if we are presenting a life where there are times that we may conquer a sin, if at least for a time, there might be an instance where we can say, no, I'm not going to give in today. Now I might stumble days or years down the road, but today I have said no. Are we being so-called theologians of glory, whatever that means? That's not a theology of glory because this is something that we are called to do as Christians. I mean, like you said, Jesus himself says, you know, if your hand or, or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. This is part of what it means to be increasingly more and more holy. And I know, again, that's another buzzword that we sometimes react against, and that's something we shouldn't react against, because we are called to be set apart. We are called to be holy in the eyes of our Lord. And that does mean actively fighting back against the things which beset us. Will we stumble and fall? Of course we will. That's part of the reality of sin. But the fact is, is that we are called to be holy just as the Lord our God is holy. And that means sometimes we have to, we have to say no. It simply means living as the scriptures tell us to. And more than that, it means ordering our lives or interpreting everything through the lens of God's special revelation, which is a fancy way of saying, read the Bible and understand it. (laughs) What an idea. (laughs) The Bible is not a mere instruction manual, but it is absolutely the lens by which we interpret everything. Right. And I'm perfectly fine with that. There is no neutral ground. There is only God's revealed will and God's revealed word. And I think one of the things that needs to be said is, is that when we talk this way, you know, I don't I don't myself personally glory in the degree to which I am learning and growing or or following this law, or this precept uh, from God's word. I mean, I it, it is true that it's all tainted by sin, but I do give thanks that God, you know, has blessed me and given me guidance and help and that 
you know, I've had good examples and learned from these good examples. I've had a good instruction from his word and learned from it and implemented it. And that my life in these very particular ways is not as, a, not as bad as it could be or would be if I completely ignored them or went in the opposite direction and then shouted grace anytime someone said boo. <laughs> right. And let's be clear here. Our discussion on the law in no way minimizes grace. If anything, it affirms it. Because everything is grace and everything is by the will and work of the Holy Spirit from first to last. But we agree with Paul. We do not continue in sin that grace may abound. The grace of God is not magnified in your sin. The grace of God is not magnified in your better and more exciting testimony. The evidence of God's Holy Spirit is found in the humble Christian and in the Christian family seeking to live godly lives because of what Christ has done in and for them. And nothing more, nothing less than that. When God purposes to save you, he will save you and he will change you. Behold, I make all things new. Ye must be born again. I like to run scripture verses together so you can accuse me of proof texting. (laughs) That is the reality of the gospel, fam. That God makes you new. And it isn't just a legal fiction. It's more than that. It's everything. It is your justification in the legal sense. Okay? And it is in the very real sense you being made into a new creature, which will all be made apparent at the end of days when we are raised up to our justification given new glorified bodies and live with him and serve him in justice and righteousness forevermore i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then you're going to stumble and fall and say grace all over again. Wait, no, that's not in there. So <laughs> He just tells you it all over. He tells you what to do, and this is good, full stop, and it's wonderful. And yeah, here, we do it imperfectly, and we glory in the forgiveness that we have, but we still do our best to live according to this word. We haven't even got to First John, which starts with, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we're faithful and just, God who is... You know, God will forgive us all our sins, then immediately pivots and says, I am writing this that you don't sin. No one who practices sin is of God. That's not the <laughs> liturgy, Willie. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we got eight and nine. That's, that's all we need. So, right. No, no need to keep reading. It is just very clear. But this is one of the reasons why we have to make prayer and the reading of scripture just as much a priority as Sunday morning worship. Mm hmm. By all means, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Make that day a day unto the Lord, holy for instruction in his word and for rest. But the other days of the week, spend time in his word. Take John again here, since we're we're in 1 John for the moment. 1 John 2, starting at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. We all know that, right? We know that we are forgiven. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, hold on a minute. Overcoming is the language of becoming holier, of actually progressing in that sort of sense in our holiness. I mean, it's, it's right there, fam. I don't know what you're going to do about it. but <laughs> Right. And this is the thing. When we say this, I fear we're going to get sawn in two like the prophets of old. We're only telling you oftentimes verbatim what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And and people will quibble with the actual words of the authors. And it, it just it just amazes me. Have we become so hardened? Have we become so calcified, so entrenched? Have we put the party over the proclamation of the truth? Is that what we've done? And we need to ask ourselves that. Look in look into the mirror and see if we ourselves are not guilty of that. I think just the way I would I put it to people is is if you find yourself reading the Bible and you're contradicting the flat, obvious sense of the author, and you're using like a theological principle to do it, there's a good chance that you're wrong. And I think that, I think we need to be on guard against that. And it's not that, 
we're going after law and gospel or the the second use of the law, the, the theological use, the chief use of the law. But we're saying that that's not some sort of trump card that just drowns out everything else that God's word is and does. If we do that, then I think that we are elevating a hermeneutic above the scripture itself. We're no longer being sola scriptura Christians, but we have made in essence our own Pope, which has authority above and over God's inspired word. Put some stank on it, friend. <laughs> now I hear in my monitor pages rustling, that means Z must have more word for us. No, I'm, I'm just flipping around here. I mean, you could go literally anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. And you could find... go to the maps if you needed to, to make yeah. this more clear. It's just, <laughs> you know, I don't know what, what more we need to say. And I don't understand why it's a debate. I mean, I do understand, but FCC regulations won't let me explain it in the clearest terms. <laughs> you have to let the scriptures speak and we need to live and breathe the scriptures so that when we speak, we are exhaling them, okay? So that we are breathing them out for the people. And again, I just want to reiterate to the layman, to the pastor, to anyone who's listening, prayer and the reading of Scripture needs to be an integral part of your life. Go to church, hear the liturgy well, hear a good sermon, receive the Lord's Supper, and listen to the lectionary. (laughs) Take those gifts, because the lectionary is good, and the liturgy is good. Take those things in, Take the good from them because they do guard us in a way. But when you go home, you've got the whole scripture that you can open up. That's your privilege as a Protestant on this side of the Reformation. You can say, I have the Bible in my language. And I'm not so uppity as I think that an English translation is not the word of God because it is. As long as you've got a good translation. That's probably an episode for another another time. But you do have you do have something that, that the world hasn't had for the majority of history. You have a Bible at home that you can take up and read. And if you can't find someone who will read it to you. I know since that's a a common meme for this show, and that's a good meme, don't get me wrong. Just getting back to the original meme that we're getting at here, also to grow up in Christ who is our head. Yeah, I was just getting filler until you you found your page, to be honest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't sure what I was looking for. (laughs) The Holy Spirit didn't tell you yet. But I just found it. But to, to grow up into Christ, who is our head, so that we are becoming more like him in everything. And so to become more like Christ means that we are being ever more conformed to the will of God. And that is something that the scriptures present as a good thing, as a holy thing, and as a desirable thing, because to be like Christ is to be with Christ in glory. And that is our goal. If we don't like serving him in righteousness, and if we don't like the idea of being holy as he is holy, we're really going to hate heaven. We're really going to hate the new earth, because that is exactly what it is. And I know we're putting words in these people's mouths, because most even crass antinomians are not going to say this. And some would have you believe an antinomian is like the chupacabra. It's something that doesn't exist, but but, but we know it does. Where are they, Willie? Now, now, that really made it sound, like, if you've been to Puerto Rico, it makes it sound like I believe in the chupacabra. I don't necessarily. But I do believe in antinomians, and one is much more dangerous than the other. Mm. And so, you know, we just need to be very careful there. Guys, it's about time to wrap it up. Any final words? Yeah, I just say that uh, God's law is good. And if someone, I mean, doesn't want to concede that, you know, talking about it in the sense of the, the first use of the law is helpful or needful, that's fine. I'll concede that. Just as long as you concede that God's law is good for the Christian and it's helpful to us, that's that's fine with me. I mean, I've had this conversation with more than a few brothers and we debated the terms of the debate or whatever, but we all finally agree that the Lord and his word tells us what to do as Christians, and it is a wonderful thing that he does. Amen. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi and Aaron Uphoff. God love you, and God bless. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.